Hi, I'm Calvin Pugh, and this is HIV Connect, a podcast from the International Association of Providers of AIDS Care, or IAPAC, that brings into focus what living with HIV looks like today. In each episode, I connect with clinicians, experts, and community leaders in conversations about clinical and psychosocial management issues, such as aging, stigma, and sexual health topics that matter to people living with HIV. Today's episode is all about weight gain in people living with HIV. And I am joined by Dr. John Curta, who's an associate professor in the Vanderbilt University's Medical Center Division of Infectious Diseases, and a physician scientist pursuing clinical and translational research on the factors influencing weight gain on antiretroviral therapy and how HIV-related changes in adipose tissue promote glucose intolerance and ectopic fat deposits. Dr. Curta also has a strong commitment to the career development of junior investigators in the field of HIV. He's the director of the developmental core of the Tennessee Center for AIDS Research and the program director of the NHLBI-supported Vanderbilt Scholars. And Lilibeth Gonzalez, who's a 68-year-old mother and grandmother raised in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Lilibeth is a survivor, living and thriving with HIV for over 31 years. She's been a community health educator with GMHC for over 17 years, where she delivers support services for other HIV-positive and at-risk women of color. Elizabeth has dedicated her life to reducing stigma by educating, counseling, and encouraging other people living with HIV to take charge of their health. She's an ambassador with NMAC and their HIV-positive over 50 cohort, Positive Women's Network, and U equals U. Elizabeth holds a peer certification from the AIDS Institute, and over the years, she's received numerous accolades. She's been celebrated on the cover of Pause magazine and has been featured in articles in health journals. Daily weight fluctuation is normal and comes down to what and when we eat, drink, exercise, and even sleep. For most of us, shedding a few extra pounds and or replacing fat with muscle seems like a never-ending quest. But for people living with chronic conditions, including HIV, significant weight gain is an important consideration that sometimes requires counseling with a clinician to get it right. On this episode of HIV Connect, we'll explore the ins and outs of achieving and sustaining a weight that promotes our overall health and well-being. Thank you both for joining me. So from your professional experience, Dr. Curta, and Lilibeth, from your personal experience, where does weight come in as a focus for people living with HIV? Well, I was always weighing 115 pounds. I was slim. I used to model. So I made sure I maintained my weight. And after I started taking my 22 pills for my HIV treatment, I developed lipodystrophy. So weight is so important for me because looks are very important for me. I'm very vain. (laughs) And um, I started gaining belly weight. My belly went up to 44 inches. I didn't know what to do anymore. I didn't know what to wear. I had to start buying baggy clothes because I didn't want my stomach protruding. So everything changed. My lifestyle, my fashion, my eating habits. Because I said, let me go on a diet. Maybe it'll go down. But my doctor said, no, even if you go on a diet, it's not going to go down. It's the HIV medication that's causing it. So it was a lot of mental stress. I didn't like looking at myself in the mirror. I didn't like shopping anymore because I used to buy nice little clothes. Now I have to buy loose clothes. 
It affected me highly. I wasn't happy with myself, but I learned to embrace it as time went on. Because I said, well, this is something I can't control. So I need to embrace it and live it the best way I can. So that's what I've been doing. You know, I dress accordingly. I'm happy the way I dress. I look quite well. And I just continue with life because what can you do? Yeah, I think that's a very common story that you that you just presented for individuals living with HIV. And I think it also highlights the way that our understanding of weight and body shape have really changed over the 40 plus years of the of the epidemic. So if you think back to the early 80s, one of the most archetypal images as we have is of somebody with severe wasting who's undergone a period of rapid weight loss almost to the point where they look malnourished. I had both. You had both as well. And then what we called in the past the Lazarus effect, where we would start individuals on antiretroviral therapy. And as you pointed out, oftentimes that you had a very high pill burden and there was a great deal of toxicity with that, this rapid weight gain that would occur on therapy. And that was part and parcel of the recovery of the immune system and sort of the nutritional rehabilitation of the body. And we saw that as a good thing. Um, because at the time it, it was a good thing when we had what it went from being an untreatable severe disease to one that we, we could treat. But then as time went on and we introduced some of the newer protease inhibitors and we began to have more experience with some of the early thymidine analogs like AZT and D4T, we saw exactly what you described, which was oh, yeah. not just a weight gain, but also then a repartitioning uh, of the weight, oftentimes from the areas, for example, in the arms and the legs and in the face to, for example, the abdomen and sometimes even in some individuals in the shoulder blades. Yeah. And we thought at the time that was all due to the toxicity of the medications. But we've begun to realize over time that even as less toxic medications have been developed, that's a continuing problem. And I think, you know, as we moved into the modern era now and we have you know, individuals who are starting on the new integrase inhibitor class drugs, oftentimes combined with, you know, newer drugs like Abacavir or Tenofovir alafenamide, what we're seeing is we're seeing continued weight gain. Some individuals, you know, no longer starting when they have severe wasting, but rather starting when they have a normal body mass index or a normal body weight, and then they're progressing to being overweight. And so really there's two phenomena there. So there's this issue of weight gain on antiretroviral therapy, and then there's this issue of how the body stores that weight. Where does it put it? Does it put it into the abdomen? You know, does it put it into the area um, around the heart? Or does it store it in what we call the subcutaneous space of the legs, the arms, the face? So really, that's something that individuals living with HIV, I think, have been struggling with for 40 years now since effective therapy was began to be available, yes. 31 years for me. First, I had facial wasting. I was so skinny, I was 90 pounds, I couldn't even walk. Then they started me with Fusion injections to try and give me some weight, but um, that affected my joints, so I had to stop that. And... Then I just, my doctor said, eat a lot of fattening. So I was having a lot of milkshakes, anything that was fattening to try and bring some body fat, you know? But then um, I gained some weight. I was okay. And then all of a sudden the stomach came out. So they also gave me a grifter, but um, I stopped that too. Yeah. But the fact that a grifter was introduced though does speak to how widespread your experience has been for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, and the reasons for it aren't really fully understood. 
you know, one thing that's very interesting about weight loss and untreated uh, HIV is that you see both a loss of fat tissue, uh, but you also mm-hmm. see a loss of lean mass. And that's what makes it different from what we think of as being starvation, yes. where usually people don't have access to sufficient food. The body does its best to, to prioritize saving that lean muscle mass and the fat mass is burned for fuel. I have no muscle mass at all. Yeah, that's a common thing that people point out is then when they start on antiretroviral therapy and they see their weight come back, we see it both in individuals like yourself who describe their experience, but we also see it in studies that do CT scans and other ways of looking at body composition, where frequently the weight that's gained back is oftentimes fat mass, not the lean skeletal mass. And then as you described, that gain of fat mass can go in two different directions. So sometimes it's gained back in what we call the subcutaneous space, which is that space that would be underneath the skin and the arms, the legs, kind of in the overlying superficial part of the abdomen. Or it's what we sometimes call deeper belly fat, uh, where it's around the internal organs. And oftentimes when, when we see that, that's then accompanied by fat also going into other areas, like I mentioned, between the shoulders, in the liver, around the heart. So one of the most important areas, I think, right now in thinking about weight gain is trying to understand not only what are the factors for why individuals gain weight and what drives that, but among those who do, what drives the placement of that extra weight either into muscle, into subcutaneous fat, which we sometimes think of as healthy fat, or into, for example, the deeper valley fat that sometimes can be accompanied by uh, increased risk of diabetes, insulin resistance, things like that. You know, with an aging population and with people now surviving decades on modern antiretroviral therapy, in many ways, our goal in the modern era, when we have these drugs like integrase inhibitors that are so sometimes we call durable, or, or people can take them for a long time without developing resistance, really comes down to how do we help people age gracefully and age healthfully. Dr. Curta, what is BMI? So BMI refers to body mass index, and it's really just a mathematical formula. It takes into account somebody's weight and somebody's height. And we've moved away at the individual level of thinking about BMI really as sort of being an absolute threshold. So it was really developed years ago as a way to look across an entire population and say for the average person, you know, a body mass index of less than 25 was considered normal, whereas a body mass index of 25 to 30 was overweight and above 30 was obese. But now we're realizing that those cutoffs are not necessarily individualized. Some people may have more muscle mass, so a higher BMI doesn't necessarily mean they have more body fat. Some people may go the other direction where they've got less muscle mass, so a given BMI represents more fat. But I think the importance of BMI is that it does provide, you know, some kind of rough guidelines in terms of what the composition of the body is in terms of bone, lean muscle, and fat. And usually a BMI, for example, over 30, uh, which we consider to be obese, probably indicates that there's an excess amount of body fat. But really, in terms of the conversation we're having today, and also when we think about sort of why do we want to prevent somebody from being obese, or why do we want to prevent excess body fat? We're learning, actually, it's not so much what the absolute amount of that body fat is, it's where it's located. So the idea of metabolically healthy versus metabolically unhealthy obesity was really developed um, about 30 years ago when people began to do studies where they looked at two individuals with the same BMI 
And one of those individuals may be not diabetic, but be what we call insulin resistant. Whereas the other one had what we call normal insulin sensitivity. And then the question came down to why. Uh, why are these two individuals with the same BMI seem to be at different risk of developing, for example, metabolic disease? And what we found was that it was not so much the total amount of fat, but rather where it was stored. So the storage of the fat around the internal organs, for example, sometimes it's called belly fat or fat that's below that muscle layer that kind of covers our abdomen. Storing fat in that area did seem to really predispose people to developing diabetes, developing heart disease, and developing other what we call comorbidities or other medical conditions. Whereas people who stored that fat elsewhere, so for example, underneath the skin of the arms and the legs, kind of in that uh, sort of superficial layer of the abdomen, they didn't seem to go on to, to those uh, other illnesses nearly as frequently. So that's why this whole issue has become so complicated, but why it's also so relevant to the treatment of HIV. Because we think that there's effects both of the virus and the medications that can drive people toward that metabolically unhealthy body fat composition, and in particular, that deposition in the deeper belly, which probably is responsible for a lot of the increased rates of diabetes and cardiovascular disease we're seeing as individuals with HIV are aging. So if we can address why that distribution is occurring and even find ways to reverse it, that may be one of our best tools to help people age healthily. So when should significant weight gain concern people living with HIV and why? So typically we use a 10% weight gain as a general cutoff uh, for what we consider to be excessive weight gain on antiretroviral therapy. Those numbers come from the general population where we know that a 5% weight loss does reduce the risk of diabetes and improves what we call insulin sensitivity or sort of the body's ability to, to handle blood sugar. So when we reverse that in the other direction, we would say that a 5 to 10% weight gain, and we usually use 10%, would be considered excessive. But that's just a rough guideline. So for example, somebody who has very advanced disease with a CD4 count, for example, of 20, who starts on therapy, gaining 10% may still only bring them you know, halfway to where they were when they began losing weight. Whereas somebody who starts antiretroviral therapy with a CD4 count, for example, of 700, who is already what we would consider to be overweight by, by BMI category, gaining 10% may push them to becoming obese and may be accompanied by changes in their metabolic health. So while we look at numbers in terms of how much weight gain is excessive, I think a more important question to ask is, how does the patient feel about the weight gain? And then as the provider, what is the impact of that weight gain on this person's heart, on their metabolic system, and on their overall health? Because our goal as providers is to prevent the development of these comorbid illnesses down the road. So it's difficult to say. So 10% is what we generally point to as considered excessive, and that's what's been used in many studies. But really, it has to be individualized to the patient. The question should not be how much weight is healthy. The question should be, how did this person's body respond to the amount of weight gain that occurred? And should we do something about it? Mm. So what I haven't seen, remember when people were getting the camel hump and they were getting the body fat yep. here? That stopped? Yeah, that has stopped. It does seem, you know, much of that was identified in the early protease inhibitor era. 
So back when we had sequinavir, for example, even for some individuals on lopinavir, uh, oftentimes when they were combined with the early NRTIs, that's a common story among people who have been living with HIV for many, many years is while the newer drugs have very high barriers to resistance, some of the old ones didn't. Um, and so yeah. you find these regimens that work and unfortunately folks need to stay on them. Mm-hmm. As long as it works for me, I'm fine. <laughs> so I think you both have brought up a really important concern for folks, especially I think anyone who's new or diagnosed maybe is looking at what happened in the past. So there's lots of concerns about weight gain for HIV treatment. And Dr. Kuth and Lilibeth, you can speak to your personal experience, but is is art to blame? Yeah, I would blame art, yes. Yes. Lilibeth, I, I would agree with you there. I think, um, you know, one of the goals in the development of antiretroviral therapy over the last 30 years has been to reduce that element of toxicity. And so, for example, if we look at, you know, AZT and D4T, those were incredibly toxic to fat cells. And in particular, they were toxic to the fat cells that would be found in the the limbs and in the face. Um, And that led to much of sort of the wasting that we saw, and that led to the body redistributing Mm -hmm. that fat elsewhere, for example, in the abdomen. As we've moved to the newer regimens, though, I think the question of weight gain on antiretroviral therapy is still a bit unclear. And the reason for that is because there's a spectrum of people's responses to starting therapy. So we now know that if we look at the population level on what we would consider to be modern antiretroviral therapy regimens, so those would be those including integrase inhibitors, later generation uh, protease inhibitors mm-hmm. like darunavir, we see a great deal of variability in how much weight people gain. And we also see that certain groups seem to be more susceptible to weight gain. So black individuals, for example, as a group, seem to gain more weight on antiretroviral therapy for reasons we don't fully understand. Women seem to gain more weight on antiretroviral therapy. Individuals with more advanced immunosuppression seem to gain more weight. And so one clear question is, why is that happening? But one question we can't answer is, what is normal weight gain? And the reason we can't is because we can't treat HIV without antiretroviral therapies. So we don't know what would happen uh, you know, if you suppressed HIV in the blood completely but didn't have to use these drugs. So we can only compare these drugs one against the other. And I think, you know, when the integrase inhibitors first came out and when some of the, uh, what we considered to be uh, excessive weight gain with treatment initiation was first recognized, and really I think some of those reports came out after dolutegravir was introduced, we assumed that somehow the integrase inhibitors were promoting weight gain. But we learned later that actually some drugs, including, for example, efavirenz, uh, which was a frequent comparator in those studies, uh, TDF, tenofovir depovoxyl fumarate, which was another comparator in those studies, may have actually been suppressing weight. We learned the potential suppressive effects of efavirenz from looking at studies where we looked at individuals' genetics, and we found out that the amount of weight that they gained or lost on efavirenz could be determined by genetics. And then we learned that TDF may actually be weight suppressive from PrEP studies, where we took individuals without HIV, we gave them TDF or placebo, and we actually saw that the individuals on TDF gained less weight than the people who were receiving nothing at all. Mm. So it's difficult to answer. Again, I think it gets to the question of individualization. I think the key thing is to assure individual starting antiretroviral therapy, that weight gain is a possibility, that it is normal, 
that it may vary by the drug that they start or the antiretroviral therapy that they start, but that this is something that's going to be monitored by their provider carefully, both in terms of their perceptions of the weight and if the weight gain is distressing, but also it should be measured at the, the laboratory level to see if their body's ability to sort of handle that weight in terms of maintaining yeah. normal blood sugar, in terms of maintaining normal heart function uh, is altered. And if it's not, if they sort of continue to be just as healthy from those two perspectives uh, after they start antiretroviral therapy as before, you know, then it comes down to sort of what's the patient preference. Yeah. I usually tell my doctor what to do because I'm always on top of everything. I do not play with my health. I do not play with my body. And when I feel something, I inform her. And she's like, but no, we shouldn't. I said, excuse me. I'm the one who's living with it. I feel the symptoms. So let's carry on and do this. Yeah, you have to be your own advocate. So what are some of the consequences? And Lilith, if you've kind of spoken to some of the consequences you had from those medications in the early days, but Dr. Curta, can you tell us what are some of the consequences of antiretroviral therapy or non-heart-related weight gain for people living with HIV? Sure. So this is another area where studies are still occurring. But some of the initial data that we have from what was known as the DAD cohort, which includes a number of different treatment clinics and thousands of individuals living with HIV across the United States, Europe, and Australia, has found that uh, weight gain on antiretroviral therapy, and particularly individuals who gain what we would call BMI units or body mass index units, for example, going from a body mass index of 25 to 28, that there is a statistically significant increased risk of developing diabetes. Now, there doesn't appear to be the same risk of developing cardiovascular disease, but that might be because we haven't followed individuals long enough yet to see them. Typically, cardiovascular disease does take longer to develop. But what these studies have shown so far is that it doesn't matter if you start with a normal body mass index, an overweight body mass index, or an obese body mass index. If you have a substantial, meaning a two or three unit increase in your body mass index after starting antiretroviral therapy, there's a significantly increased risk of developing diabetes. And that's been shown in other cohorts as well. So the uh, United States Veterans Affairs System actually the largest HIV care provider in the United States, single provider, with over 35,000 U.S. veterans on care. That provides a great opportunity to do these sorts of studies. And what they found there is, for example, that a 10-pound weight gain on antiretroviral therapy confers about twice the risk of developing diabetes as a 10-pound weight gain in a veteran without HIV. Would, uh, would confer. So there does appear to be what we sometimes call synergistic, meaning these two factors interact, effect of, of, of HIV and weight together on the risk of developing diabetes or other metabolic diseases that are related to diabetes. Yeah. I was also diagnosed with chronic kidney disease stage 3A. Mm -hmm. I guess it's due to the medication and the HIV. I was pre-diabetic, but I was able to control my sugar and everything, so I'm down to normal. You have to control everything. I think you brought up a great point there, Lilibeth. So maybe you can speak to some of the behavioral and physical and nutritional changes that can be made to address weight gain and improve our health. Well, I exercise. I try to maintain a low-sugar diet, very low-sugar diet, low salt because of my kidneys also. I try to rest as much as possible. 
And I just keep up with my weight. You know, uh, if it's going down, I'm concerned. If it's rising, I'm concerned. I speak to my doctor. Um, the thing is, just be very adamant about your body, your body weight, what you're eating, stress. <laughs> Don't allow too much stress in your life. And just take care of yourself. Make yourself your number one priority. And help others, advise others. I have my own group for people over the age of 50. I seek professional speakers to advise them on how to, you know, take care of their heart, their diabetes, their kidneys. I keep on top of that so people can be informed. We need to inform ourselves so that we can inform others on how to live a healthy life while aging with HIV. Because this is a big, huge issue, aging with HIV. When you get past your 60s, it's very difficult. You have to be very, very adamant. You have to look at your blood work. I call my doctor. I say, wait a minute, what is this lab result here? Explain it to me. You have to have a good rapport with your doctor. That's number one. My doctor calls me. I call her. You must have a good rapport with your health team, all of them, all of them, nutritionists, everyone. If you don't have a good rapport, you're not going to know what to do. Dr. Curta, is there physical or behavioral or nutritional changes that can be made? First off, I would say I think that was very well put about communication with your with your doctor. I think one thing is that it's only been since about 2017 that more than half the people living with HIV in the United States were over the age of 50. So as patients and as providers, we're all learning together sort of what aging with HIV and more importantly, what healthy aging with HIV really looks like. But all the points you brought up are excellent. Uh, right now, there are no real specific guidelines for, for weight loss or for weight management among individuals living with HIV as compared with the general population. And all of the same general guidelines apply. So, for example, adequate exercise, adequate sleep, adequate uh, liquid intake, particularly water intake, and then most importantly, a balanced diet that's going to be high in fiber, higher in protein or adequate protein, and, and low in saturated fats and processed foods. I would point out that we're also, uh, because we're seeing the use of medical weight loss in the general population increasing, we don't have a lot of data right now, for example, in the GLP-1 agonist uh, treatments, but I think we're going to see more of that because there's no reason why these agents couldn't be used you know, more broadly particularly uh, among people living with HIV. And we also don't really have much evidence that bariatric surgery, um, you know, is, is ineffective or, or dangerous either. That yeah. seems to be, you know, certainly an option as well. The number of studies looking at exercise and diet in individuals living with HIV is unfortunately very small. And I, for one, and others working in this field would like to see more of these studies. But some of the studies that have been well done indicate that Diet and exercise interventions um, have the same or better effects for weight loss among individuals living with HIV. And actually, the amount of visceral or belly fat that can be lost with, with exercise interventions is greater among individuals living with mm -hmm. HIV. And that may be because some of these folks are starting with more. But it seems to be effective for both of those, those aspects. So as it stands right now, we, we don't have specific recommendations in the field, but we're learning about aging healthily with HIV as we all go along. So finally, because Lilibeth brought it up, there are some psychological dimensions to one's weight. So how do we balance the scale and preserve our sanity? Well, I think that's an individual conversation between each individual and their provider. 
I think that the key things that we can do as providers and the key things we can all keep in mind is that untreated HIV is a disease that induces weight loss. So somebody's body weight when they start therapy may not be what their body would consider its proper set point or proper healthy point. So weight gain on antiretroviral therapy is not necessarily a bad thing because there was likely weight loss. And in particular, there was probably loss of some of that lean muscle that we don't want to lose that occurred before starting. So that's the first thing I think to, to point out. The second is that it's important to separate the number of the weight gain and even somebody's sense kind of of, you know, how has this changed my appearance or the way I feel about myself from what the metabolic and cardiovascular heart consequences are. And I think as providers, our job is to be sensitive and receptive to people's concerns regarding the body weight and the appearance and offer solutions such as exercise, diet, and even potentially other weight loss interventions that respond to that. We'll also be vigilant to do our job, which is to make sure that the impact of this weight gain on their metabolic and heart health is not severe. But I think as providers, our, our job is to be sensitive to people's concerns, but also be vigilant to make sure that that we are looking for early warning signs. that Maybe this is going to cause problems down the road. Beth, what advice would you give someone whose weight is being fluctuating and they're, they're having a hard time with it? Speak to your provider, get a nutritionist, have the nutritionist help you walk through what you can eat that might help you gain or lose weight. Be adamant about your health. Make sure you're eating properly and just try to embrace it really because there's nothing much you can do. If you're losing weight, you will try to gain some weight. If you're gaining weight, you're going to try to control that. I'm not seeing too many people with lipodystrophy now as I did back then. Because as um, John had mentioned, the um, dosage on the medication is a lot lower. So I don't think people might have too many effects on it now due to the low dose. You know, they've changed the regimen quite a lot. What I used to get was very toxic, very strong, really went into your blood cells and messed you up. But today, it's uh, a lot better to tolerate. I don't think we have too many people today with lipodystrophy. I wouldn't know the statistics on that. Do you, John? Well, back in the early 90s, we were seeing about 50% of individuals in some surveys had what we call clinically apparent or you know, apparent to the naked eye lipodystrophy. Today, we're seeing fewer numbers, but I think one thing that we're, we need to consider is, is that the proportion of individuals with HIV who do have excess body weight has also gone up. So some of that can also be hidden. So when we look at more recent survey studies, we actually still do see that a lot of people have increased, for example, liver fat, increased deeper belly fat, increased fat around the heart, which may not be as clinically apparent, but it hasn't completely gone away. Yeah. Well, I want to thank my guests, Dr. John Curtup and Lilibeth, for joining me today on this very important topic. It's important that we prioritize our health and discuss with our providers these important concerns and really look out for yourself. And as Lilibeth said, prioritize yourself first. Uh, 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 
HIV Connect is made possible through educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merkin Company, which has no influence over the podcast series topics, content, or speaker selection. To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, visit AIDSinfoNet at www.iapac.org backslash support backslash AIDS dash infonet or click the link in the show notes. As IAPAC's Senior Advisor on Community Engagement, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.